Welcome from Euractive. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your digital and media editor, and this is the Digital Brief podcast. This week, we look at the EU Semiconductor Strategy. For an overview on all things digital in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website euroactive.com. This is Euroactive's Digital Brief podcast. I have two guests today, Niklas Poitier, Research Fellow at Bruegel, and Pauline Weil, Research Assistant at Bruegel. So you have worked together on a research called A New Direction for the European Union Half-Hearted Semiconductor Strategy. Can you give us a bit of context about this uh, semiconductor shortage we have heard so much about in the last months? Uh, notably, can, can you give us uh, some few real-life uh, examples of what this uh, shortage is, is impacting? First of all, Lucas, thank you very much for having us. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to advertise our work here in, in this podcast. Um, I think we all have an idea about what semiconductors is, but for those who maybe not be so into this whole um, t- field, uh, maybe first, it, it's basically the computer chips that we have in our laptops and our smartphones. Um, and and that not just there, but on all kinds of appliances, if everything that is digital nowadays includes basically uh, semiconductor uh, chips. And these chips, some of them are, are very, are basically commodities at this point, or they're very, others are very specialized. And then there's these chips that are really in that cutting edge that are really, really in tiny, have tiny structures on them that we use in our smartphones and that power computers. And for these, only very, very few companies, and basically just two companies, the Taiwanese and the, uh, Samsung, a Korean, um, can actually produce them. And since now everything is getting more digital, and in particular in the last year, um, we had this surge due to the pandemic where everyone is buying new laptops and new, um, new cameras and all these kind of things. There was a surge in demand for this kind of computer chips. And at the same time, what we've seen is that the US has put sanctions on uh, some Chinese companies, in particular Huawei, limiting their ability to do procure uh, microchips for their products, uh, which meant that Chinese companies started hoarding um, to kind of prevent that they they might be left out in the dry not without any supply. And at the same time, we had a drought in, in Taiwan, and all this came together with a, basically with a, just a cycle of, of basically demand and supply in the sector left left a shortage of semiconductors in the world. And this has, has many, uh, many implications. The one is that if you are someone that's into computer games or you do Bitcoin mining, uh, some of these uh, of, of our com- computer components have become uh, very, very expensive. You might not be able to to buy your PS5 um, just because there's basically not enough chips to put in there. But uh, maybe more relevant for the European industry, our computers are becoming more and more uh, computers on wheels, meaning that you need chips to drive all this, to kind of steer all the components that we have in our cars. They make up a very, very large share of the value added in the car. And, and, and big European car manufacturers cannot buy these chips, um, which has made it such a such an important issue also for the EU. So in your research, uh, you are discussing the EU semiconductor strategy. Can you explain what has been done so far by the EU and also by EU member states? In the EU, since the turn of 2021, 
there's been some political will to try to increase the weight, the presence of the EU in the um, semiconductors supply chain. This has been prompted by the shortages that Nicholas just explained, but also by the fact that in the confrontation between the US and China, semiconductors have played a big role. And basically, the decoupling strategy that both the US and China have started following in order to be independent in this important technology have prompted both these countries to invest huge amounts of money to be able to produce the, the, the most cutting-edge technologies. And I think um, the EU has gotten taken the hint from, from both these apertures and also from the fact that its own industries were being challenged by the, the recent shortages. But I think uh, what, we, what we've come to the conclusion to with Nicholas is that the EU strategy has been quite a lot of communication, but few actual actions or especially few actual action plans. And so in that sense, the EU has come out with uh, big communications uh, saying that it wants to be able to produce the most cutting edge chips. But like Nicholas just mentioned, there's only two companies in the world that know how to produce these. And that's not just chance. It's, it is symptomatic of a sector that is highly concentrated because it requires huge amounts of upfront capital for research and investment, research and development and capital expenditure. And so in that sense, what we argue is that Europe's strategy so far seems just unrealistic. Moreover, the leverage that the EU has to be able to pursue such a strategy differ from those of the US and China in the sense that the EU is not a state, a sovereign state with uh, its own funds to be able to invest in an industry it considers strategic. So in that sense, the, 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 the biggest tool that the EU has come up with is something called IPCEI, which means Important Project of Common European Interest. And it's a tool that allows the EU to say okay to a member state to provide state aid to a specific industry. And so this is a tool that could, that could prove useful, but it's just that in practice, it doesn't provide the incentive for member states to invest their own public fund into uplifting the European strategy. And um, just one last thing that's of interest is that I think very recently this week, uh, the European Union has made yet another communication on uh, the industrial alliance, on the industrial alliance it's planning for the sector. And we've discussed with Nicholas just, just before this call. On the one hand, uh, it's encouraging because it shows an intent to invest in design, which is a specific subsector of the industry where the EU could actually get some uh, leverage in the sense of getting some um, players that would have a competitive role in, in, in the industry. But on the other hand, the EU continues to have these big communications where it says that it wants to be able to produce cutting edge chips that only two companies in the world know how to produce and it just seems unrealistic. It's quite clear that uh, in your report, uh, you're 
critical of the EU strategy. And uh, what I would like to better understand is what you are suggesting exactly. So you mentioned that uh, the EU could have a competitive edge uh, for what concerns uh, chip design. So uh, is what you're suggesting basically that the EU should focus on certain aspects of the supply chain? And uh, if so, which ones? Yes, indeed. We we believe that uh, the focus we have right now is very much driven by the international discussion, um, which is a very, very strong focus on one particular part of the value chain, which is this fabrication. And fabrication is one of the most concentrated parts of the value chain. It's a part where the US doesn't have players, at least in the cutting edge. And it's also a, a place um, where there's actually not that much demand in Europe. Uh, and we think this is a bit of a mistake. So w- we believe that we should think more about what are actually our objectives instead of just following what are the objectives from the US and China, which start from very different positions and also which, which have very different political interests in the sector. I mean, especially the US, but also for China, this is also a military component. And the US very clearly states in, in its policy um, that it thinks it has to be one or two generations, a few generations ahead of China in this particular sector. In Europe, there is not that much this necessity here. Um, and also we think we cannot, as Pauline was, was elaborating, we cannot really compete on this particular sector. We don't have the, right, the same tools, but also um, there is not that much need here. Therefore, we think, yes, it is, a, it is an important sector and it's a sector that should be part of an industrial strategy and where the issue has, should do more. But we should be really focused on the things, on what we want to achieve and then the things we are good at or we, we could actually gain easily. And there's a few parts. And the first one is really the parts where we're already strong. And there it's really, for instance, the equipment makers. That the machines that are used in this cutting at fabrication, they are mainly European and there's very, very little. Basically, some of them have a monopoly in their particular subset of the sector. And this is already an important bargaining trick that we have. So we, we should, the, the perception that Europe is just way behind, that's true in some parts of the market, but as a whole, it's not true. And this is an international, very specialized supply chain. We cannot expect to be at the top everywhere. So we should really just focus on this part. This is the one part. So the things where we're strong and support them and make sure that we keep these bargaining chips, that, that basically these are not bought from, from, for instance, outside investors. Um, and the second part is to look at where are parts where we can actually gain in the sector and, and uh, get a more larger share. And here we think that the fa- focus on fabrication is a bit is a bit of a problem. First of all, because it's very capital intensive, it's very expensive to build this co- these fabrications. China and the US also have made it focus of their investment to go in there. We have we have strong established players, so really to compete here would mean a lot of investment. And the benefits are in terms of economic sovereignty and also in terms of, uh, of growth and employment are actually not that substantial. Therefore, we think, for instance, something like design is much more, uh, much more, it's much more closer to what we can achieve. You need less money. It's, it's basically in the realm more of EU policy tools in particular research and development. It's an area which has been used in the past as a, as a tool. So we think this is a much more much more promising focus where the EU could achieve much more with much less. So another point that you make in your study is that this uh, old uh, semiconductor uh, shortage and strategy is also symptomatic of the EU technological environment. 
in the sense that it shows how the EU is lagging behind in some leading technology. As you were saying, these are very capital-intensive industries. But if you're never invested in there, it's now very difficult to catch up. So how do you think the EU can reverse this uh, trend and, and start uh, leading uh, on technology? I think you are totally right. And, I, and that's what Nicholas was mentioning just now. We are now trying to invest massively into semiconductors, but the truth is we don't even consume any semiconductors. I think everyone is quite aware that our ICT products in the sense of our computers, our phones are not produced in Europe and are not from European companies in the first place. So in this sense, in all these new technologies, Europe is just not the continent where the innovation or the industrial giants are. On the one hand, we argue that the way we are going about semiconductors is maybe not the right one. But on the other hand, we argue that indeed the Europe should take stock of the fact that it has fallen behind in a lot of these industries and tried to go forward. So to do that, um, we think there's two core messages. On the one hand, there is an environment in Europe that is just less conducive to having startups, which are the, the companies, the, the format of companies that usually uh, rise in the high tech sector flourish. And I think this is due a lot to the landscape of investments in these companies. That is to say that, for instance, in the US, you will have a lot more venture capitalists with business angels that will invest massively into one innovation and be able to scale up and, and create industrial leaders in the sector. Whereas in Europe, um, this landscape, this investment landscape is much more dominated by banks, which are just for a number of reasons not fitted to finance these kinds of industrial innovations. And that's interesting that the Europe that Europe is is understanding that, but that is some changes that, that are quite inelastic to the will of policymakers, if I may say, but that's some gradual reforms in the sector that, that can lead to that on the one hand. And on the second hand, we also show that these sectors, and that's especially true for some very high technology industrial activities in the semiconductor supply chain require some know-how. And so that means some, some people that are very well formed, very well educated in the sector and Europe is not is also lacking a lot of know-how. And so this is some basic investment in universities, in PhD programs and in state-funded R&D possibly um, to push the, the EU know-how in the sector. And that would be that would be of interest. Thank you, Niklas, and thank you, Pauline, for being with us today. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Digital Brief newsletter to receive a comprehensive overview on digital affairs in the world of European politics and policy directly in your mailbox. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. The Digital Brief podcast takes a well-deserved break for the summer. We will start again at the end of August. I'm Luca Bertuzzi and thank you for listening. Music